we're going to, uh, today's going to be a little bit different um, in that, you know, I, I'm normally, uh, I teach, I, I love to teach the scripture, and so normally I spend most of my time in the scripture, teaching through the scripture. Today, we're going to have a conversation, um, and let me give you some information. Uh, today, we're going to kind of begin a series that we're going to go through in the, in the following weeks. And I don't know if you remember last week at the end of the service, I said this week, beginning this week, we're going to kind of begin a series that's, that's going to kind of lay out the vision um, and help you have an, an understanding of, of who we are and what we feel like. Um, this is the conviction God's put on my heart about, about the church and about uh, how we're going to reach our community and affect transformation. How many of you believe and would agree that we're not here on Sunday morning just so we can have a nice worship time? I know that's what, um, for a lot of people, that's what church has become. It's become a place where I go for a couple of hours on Sunday morning and I kind of, you know, pay my dues to God and I kind of get refreshed and ready for the coming week. And then I go back the next Sunday or two weeks later or whenever, and then I get another refreshing and another fill up. And then that's not what church is about. That's not why God saved us. That's not what Christianity is about. We don't exist here just so you can come and have a nice experience. We are here, the Bible says, the the Bible calls pastors Gifts that God has given, that specifically Christ has given to the church. Ephesians 4, 11. And when he ascended, he gave gifts to the church. Some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers. For what? For the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry. So the purpose of this meeting is to be equipped for the work of ministry. Where does the work of ministry take place? Well, yes, it takes place in here, but, but the point of being equipped for the work of ministry is so that when you go back out into the world, when you go back out to your workplace, when you go back out to your families, when you go back out and, and you live and you work and you play and whatever you do, that you go out equipped and you are allowing the light and the life of Christ to be manifest through you. Not in the words you say, yes, through your words, but your words have no meaning if the expression of your life doesn't match your words. If I tell you I'm a Christian and I love Jesus, but I'm out there hating on people and I'm out there living a lifestyle that is totally contrary to who God is, then my words become null and void, right? I mean, if you find out that I'm beating my dog and beating my cat and beating my kids and beating my wife, but yet I'm telling you how much I love Jesus, my words would be a little hollow, wouldn't they? Because it'd be kind of like, Pastor, your life doesn't really line up with what you're telling me. So what's really important is that our life affirm what our words are communicating. And this assembly The reason we come together is for us to be equipped to go out into the world and manifest Christ to a lost and dying world. And so today, I'm going to give you some information. Some of it I gave to you actually a couple of years ago. We're going to touch on, uh, I don't know if you remember a couple of years ago. You probably don't, um, but I do. Um, the, the, The... Information was released in 2010 by the Barna Group, and, and uh, he talked about six, six mega-themes that, that are t- transpiring in the church. But we're going to talk about some of those things. Now, I don't like to get up and just give you a bunch of st- statistics just for the sake of it, but, but I really do feel like I need to lay uh, kind of a, a foundation and a groundwork. It's going to be important that, uh, and I really want to encourage you, if you care about the church, and I'm not just talking about Christ Fellowship Church, if you care about the church, if you care about Christianity, if you care about whether Christianity is really going to be able to have an impact in our culture, I'm not talking about man-made Christianity. I'm not talking about what man has done to the church. I'm talking about true biblical Christianity. I'm talking about true 
biblical community. I'm talking about manifesting the true life and the true love of Christ. I'm not talking about just false religion or some tradition. If you care about the church, if you care about the message of the gospel, I really want to encourage you to take uh, the time to come and to hear um, and, and to begin to discern what is transpiring around us. Okay? So I'm calling this message today, Knowing Our Times. Knowing Our Times. Now, in order to know our times, we, we really need to... Have, have any of you guys ever... How many of y'all have ever played on Google Maps? How many of you like Google Maps? It's kind of cool, isn't it? Have you ever been somewhere and he's like, ah, you get on Google Maps and say, hey, I've been to that place before. Now, have you ever been on Google Maps and you've, you've zoomed in as far as you can? You know, and it's pretty amazing that from a satellite you can zoom in as far as you can. They can zoom in even farther than that. They just don't let you do it with that Google Map thing. But even with Google Maps, it's pretty amazing how, how you can zoom in on a spot. Now, what happens when you zoom out? When you zoom out, you get a whole different perspective, don't you? I mean, the other day, I went to Houston last Tuesday. I went to Houston to pick up a pastor from Liberia. About two years ago, I was working in my office, and the phone rang, and I answer, as I always do, if Shelby's not here, because if Shelby's here, she always answers the phone. Shelby wasn't here that day, and so the phone rang, and I said, Cross Fellowship, and I hear this voice with broken English on the other side, and immediately my mind said, hey, this guy's not from America. And so he says, is this Christ Fellowship? And I said, yes, this is Christ Fellowship. He says, this pastor whatever. I said, no, this is Pastor Jeff. And it became apparent to me that it was a wrong number. It just so happened the wrong number was from Liberia, West Africa. Well, and it just kind of intrigued me. So instead of saying, sorry, you have the wrong number, I just started talking to the guy. And from that wrong number, wrong number, from that wrong number, me and Pastor Kamara developed a relationship over the next two years. So for two years, we probably would talk by phone, at least once a month, if not sometimes more than that. And um, never met the guy, just heard his very sweet, meek, humble voice on the other end of the phone. So the, the two weeks before Easter, he calls me, as he normally does, and uh, he tells me he's coming to America. And... Uh, it was kind of a spontaneous thing. That was a miracle even in and of itself. So long story short, he says, I'm going to be in Houston. How close are you to Houston? I said, hey, I'm two and a half hours from Houston. If you're going to be in Houston, I'm going to drive over and we'll have lunch together. We'll spend the afternoon together. So I did that. Um, but it ended up we spent more than an afternoon together. I actually picked him up and brought him back home with me. <laughs> and he stayed with me. It was awesome. It was just awesome. But here's my point. See, I get, I get on these rabbit trails. I could, tell you, I could tell you a whole story about that, and, and it's fascinating. But here's my point. So I'm picking him up in Houston. I have no idea where I'm going, right? Never been to this church. So guess where I went? I went to Google Maps. And so now, if in order to find that church, in order to understand how I'm going to get from Taylor to... Christ Community Church in Houston, Texas, if I just go to the little red A character and I zoom in on that, it'll tell me where the church is, but if I don't have the big perspective, guess what? I'm not going to know how to get from Taylor to that location. So I, I had to know more than just I had to be more than just tuned in on what that specific location was. I had to pull back and get the big picture to understand how I'm going to get from Taylor to that specific location in Houston, Texas. 
This is true for our lives. This is true for the church. If we become so focused in that we can't see beyond the dot that we're looking at, we're not going to discern correctly, we're not going to understand how we are going to get from where we are today to where we must be. So this is what I mean when I say knowing our times. So it's very interesting if, if, if you take the time and you begin to, how many of you love history? You're in school and you loved history. See, not very many people like history. Some people do, but the majority of people don't like history. And that's really a shame. You know why history keeps repeating itself? Well, besides the fact that human nature is the same from Adam until now. But also, people don't, people don't know history. They don't learn from the past because they won't take the time to find out and study history. So we become, we become locked in and focused on this little dot that we call our life, and we don't have a clue what's transpired before us, and we don't think about what's going to transpire after us because we live in the moment. And that's a dangerous place to live. So one of the interesting things that's, that's been happening over the course of the last several decades denominationalism, we're not a denomination. We are a non-denominational church. For years, when we first came here, uh, our sign out there said Christ Fellowship Church, and it said interdenominational church. I'm not sure what the difference between an inter and a non. I think what that meant was, because we have people, if I took a survey today, there's people here from every kind of background you can imagine, from Catholic to Lutheran to Baptist to atheist or whatever, you know? I mean, we come from all kinds of... So we're a, we're a non-denominational church or interdenominational. You know, I changed it to, in, to non-denominational because we are. We're not a not denomination. But that doesn't mean that we don't have a past, we don't have a history. And, and so you, you, take, you take these things all into consideration. You think about denominationalism, and denominationalism has been on the decline for several decades now. So it's kind of like I have some pastor friends who are pastors of traditional denominations. And we get together every so often and we talk. And, and man, these denominations are scrambling to try to figure out what's going on because they're losing, they're losing people. You go in some of these churches and the average age is 70 and above. Why is that? Well, it's not really just specific to their denomination. This is happening across the board. And the reason it's happening is because it's a cultural phenomenon. And so a lot of so now what's happened is these denominations have decided, well, what we need to do is adjust our theology. And so they begin to adjust their theology and to the point that we have the scripture rewritten where we've taken the scripture and we've taken things out and we've changed things and we say, well, this doesn't apply anymore and that, that, that not, is not true anymore. And a lot of that is done in an effort to stem the tide of people that are leaving the church. The problem is they're doing the exact opposite of what they should be doing. Uh, in an effort to try to, to save themselves. So denominationalism has been on the decline for several decades. Non-denominational churches like ours have been riding the wave of declining denominations by attracting people with non-traditional worship, um, with less rigid structure. You notice I don't have robes and a clerical collar on today. Okay? And uh, that's appealing to some people and not appealing to other people. Um, so there's a greater degree of freedom, for instance, in, in our church in some ways than there would be, say, in other churches. And so in these non-denominational churches such as ours, we've kind of ridden the wave of this decline of denominationalism, and, and so a lot of people that become discontent with the denominations, they, they come to churches like ours because, you know, it's different, it's, it's not what I'm used to, and it's not dead, and it's not, well, I can, you know, I can, I can, I can, I don't have to wear my suit. Well, I don't have a suit, so I don't feel uncomfortable going in my blue jeans, because the pastor wears blue jeans. That's all, that's all fine and good, but what I'm saying is, 
we've kind of ridden this wave, and now what's happening is we're seeing that across the board, the church in general is in decline in America. It just is. Now, I, I want you to understand I put the word church in quotation marks. Because what did Jesus say? Let, let's just read the words of Jesus because it's important for us. Because when you begin to look at some of this stuff and you're just looking at raw numbers, now, so I was a marketing major at the University of Texas, okay? So I got my degree in marketing from UT. So I'm kind you know, looking at raw numbers, looking at data and statistics. I kind of like that stuff, you know? I kind of like to look at all that and and figure out, I just kind of a thing I like to do, you know? And I think it's important for us to use wisdom and to use the information that's out there, but we can't let that information and that wisdom override the truth. You hear what I'm saying? The numbers may be factual. The statistics may be factual, but the statistics, as factual as they are, will never override the truth. Who is the truth? Jesus is the truth. And here is what Jesus says. Matthew chapter 16, verse 18. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So here's my point. The numbers are factual, but the truth is Jesus will build his church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The fact is the church is in decline, but the truth is Jesus is going to build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So when I read the numbers, when I study the statistics, I don't let the facts of the statistics discourage me because I know what the truth is. The truth is Jesus is building his church and and the gates of hell are not going to prevail against it. As a matter of fact, the way I look at the numbers, I actually get excited about the numbers. Because what it tells me is people are leaving man-made religion, people are leaving man-made traditions, people are leaving what, what at one time was meant to be the truth but has become something man has created. They're leaving that, and that means they're out there looking for something that's real. They might not even know what they're looking for. So I think of what Jesus said in the book of Revelation, better that you be hot or cold, because if you're lukewarm, I'll spew you, I'll vomit you out of my mouth. There's a lot of people sitting in churches today who think they're okay because they're in church. And they're living very lukewarm lives. What do you think would be better for them? You think it would be better for them to be hot or to be cold? Some people say, well, you know, it's better that they're in church. At least then God has an opportunity to speak to them. As if God doesn't have an opportunity to speak to them outside of church? Do you see the fallacy there? you see the flaw in our reasoning? No. Better that they be hot or cold. I'd rather them flee the church that man has created and let God transform their hearts and let them discover the truth and come to be a part of the church Jesus is building. Amen? So, this church that I put in quotations, why? Because the church, the body of Christ, will never be in decline. But what man has established and called the church is absolutely in decline right now. Some of this has come to, to at a cost of the so think of this pendulum. So this pendulum's kind of swinging. And so now we've seen this pendulum swing way over. And so it's kind of like now people are, are beginning to wake up because the water's starting to get hot. We're starting to notice, hey, this water's getting kind of hot. I'm in here. Y'all all know the analogy of the old frog in the pot, right? And so, some of this has come at a cost as the pendulum has swung too far in the other direction. And the balance is not in new initiatives that will swing it back the other direction. The balance is the Scripture. The balance is the Gospel. In fact, Christ, Christ is the balance. 
And so humans almost always, do you guys agree with me? Humans almost always do not embrace change. How many of you love change? Anybody love change? EJ does. And Olga does. That's two out of everybody here. See, the majority of people don't like change. Matter of fact, most humans, I believe, are resistant to change. And that's, that's, of course, unless they're the ones desiring a change. So Caleb might love the way the furniture is at the house, but if EJ wants the furniture to be different, and Caleb comes home at the end of the day and the furniture's all different, he might hate it, but she loves it because she wanted a change, right? But in general, humans almost always resist change. Change is constant, though. Do you understand this? Change is constant in our world. Everything around us is changing. Change is constant, and that is not bad, but in reality, it's good. Who doesn't change? God. God doesn't change. In Him, there is no variableness nor shadow of turning. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. That's what the Scripture declares about God. The gospel does not change. We don't change the gospel to make it more appealing to people. When we do that, it's no longer the gospel. It's another gospel, but not the true gospel. So God doesn't change. The gospel doesn't change, but the world that God created is constantly changing and going through the cycles and the seasons of life. And so it is in the church, and so it is in our culture. Amen? So we have to discern the changes that are taking place around us so that we can be more effective in fulfilling our commission. What's our commission? Matthew 28. Go ye therefore in all of the world and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them. That's our commission. That's the great commission. Our mission as a church, we say, is to reach people and help them grow to become fully functioning followers of Christ. That mission is absolutely in step with the great commission that God has given to His church. Really, that is the mission of the church. We can have a nice mission statement, but the reality is our mission statement better line up with the great commission because that's ultimately the mission of the church. So Christ fellowship is a part of the church, the greater universal body of Christ. We're responsible for the land God has given us and the people of that land. Amen? What's the land God has given us? I mean, we're here, we're in Taylor, Texas. So we're not responsible for what happens in Austin, Texas. We can pray about it, we can like it or we can dislike it, but the reality is, God's planted our church, our fellowship of believers here in Taylor. So this is the land that we're responsible for, this surrounding area that we call East Williamson County. That begins with us, the CFC body of believers, and it moves out from that center to our communities and beyond. So just like Jesus said, in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the utter parts of the earth. This is the center that we move out from. Not just this building, not just this thing called Christ Fellowship, but even in your life. What what God is desiring to do in you and through you begins in your home, with your family. So we must be a people who know how to discern the times in which we live. We must be able to recognize the changes taking place in the culture around us that are having a direct impact on the church. And we must be willing and able to do this, to know our times for the sake of the gospel. For the sake of the gospel. Now, I'm going to bore you with some some numbers for just a little bit, okay? Or actually some trends. I want you to... How many of you guys remember being in school? How many of you had a teacher that said, Now, children, let's put our thinking caps on. Did you ever have a teacher that said that to you? David just shot himself in the head. (laughs) I did. I can remember teachers telling me, now, children, put your thinking caps on. Okay, well, I won't tell you to do that, okay, but you get the message, right? Now, a couple of years ago, I shared these statistics with you that that just had come out from the Barna Group, and I'm just going to hit the six 
the six themes. Some of you may remember this, some of you probably won't. The first one is this, the Christian church, you guys know who Barna is. Barna's like, he's a, he's a well-established researcher. They, they spend all their time doing research. He specifically researches the church and things that are impacting the church and the Christian community. So here were his six mega-themes that are emerging in 2010, okay, two years ago. Number one, the Christian church is becoming less theologically literate. In the Old Testament, here's what the prophet said, there is a drought of God's word. And this, this is what this researcher basically is saying. There is a drought of God's word that is becoming apparent in the church in America. What used to be basic, universally known truths about Christianity are now unknown mysteries to a large and growing share of Americans, especially the younger generations. I'm going to just touch on these because I have a lot of information I want to cover with you today. Number two is this. Christians are becoming more ingrown and less outreach-oriented. That means that we, we are so focused on this little dot here that we call our church and what happens here on Sunday morning or Wednesday night or whenever that we're failing. We're, the world is just out there. And the world is looking at us so micro-focused on what we do, the world is discerning that, hey, these Christians don't really care about us. All they do is care about themselves. And the numbers are showing that that is true. Despite technological advances that make communications instant and far-reaching, Christians are becoming more spiritually isolated from non-Christians than than was true a decade ago. Three is this, growing numbers of people are less interested in spiritual principles and more desirous of learning pragmatic solutions for life. Growing numbers of people are less interested in spiritual principles and more desirous of learning pragmatic solutions for life. When asked what matters most, teenagers prioritize education, career development, friendships, and travel. Faith is significant to them, but it takes a back seat to life accomplishments. The areas of growing importance are lifestyle comfort, success, and personal achievements. Those dimensions have risen at the expense of investment in both faith and family. The deeper thinking that occurs typically relates to economic concerns or relational pressures. Spiritual practices are rare. Because we continue to separate our spirituality from other dimensions of life. Sunday is in this box, and Monday's in a totally separate box. My Christian faith is in the box with Sunday, but when I step out of Sunday in my Sunday box and I step into my Monday box, I leave my Sunday box behind. I left that at home under my bed, and I won't get it out again until it's time to go to church again on Sunday. That's when I talk about compartmentalization. It's rampant in our culture. Not just the church, it's rampant in our culture. You don't believe it? Just take take some time and watch the evening news. When you hear someone bring up issues that have to do with faith, you'll you'll understand what I mean about the compartmentalization. They're very quick to let you know, oh, that's, that's faith, that's faith, that's Christian, that doesn't belong in Washington, that doesn't belong in the State House, that doesn't belong in City Hall, that's Sunday morning, that's between you and God. That's the compartmentalization. How has our culture come to that place? It's come to that place because the church, the church is the one that began to compartmentalize their faith. And the church needs to uncompartmentalize. Four is this, among Christians, interest in participating in community action is escalating. I'm going to talk a little bit more about this uh, in some more recent research that's come out. Uh, It may sound a little contradictory, but it's actually not. There is less interest in the church, but there's more interest in community action and, and doing things from a spiritual point of view. But, but what we need to understand is people today, some 80 million people in our culture today do not equate spirituality with the church. 
those people that have been born between 1980 and 2000, in the vast majority, some 85% of them do not equate spirituality with the church. The church is not spiritual to them. There's a problem with that. There's a problem with that. Five, postmodern insistence on tolerance is winning over the Christian church. Hence, we have the rewriting of the scriptures. Hence, we have the changing of our theologies to no, that no longer conform to what the scripture declares, but now they conform to cultural norms. Why? Because the pressure that the culture is putting on the church, and, and why is the church bending to the pressure? Because the church is trying to figure out how to stop people from leaving it. Denominations who were the standard bearers for the scripture and for truth now have laid the standard down. Why? Because they're trying to figure out how to keep people and compromise seems to be the way that they've chosen. Number six is this. The influence of Christianity on culture and individual lives is largely invisible. I'm going to say that again. The influence of Christianity on culture and individual lives is largely invisible, except in a negative way. You guys ever seen those, those guys from uh, Kansas and that church in Kansas that go to all the funerals? It's a Baptist church in Kansas. And they go to funerals of dead soldiers. And they hold up signs that say, God hates faggots. We actually personally ran into them in Kilgore a number of years ago. And I never knew who that. I'm like, who are these people? They're holding all these posters. God hates faggots. God hates America. And, and I'm like, and my first thought was, oh my gosh. Uh, obviously these people feel like they're speaking for God. What are the, what are the non-believers taking from this? That's usually what gets promoted on the television. But the influence of Christianity on the culture largely is invisible. Why? Because the church has barricaded itself inside of our buildings and we refuse to engage the culture. Now, that's old. That, that information's uh, from, from a couple of years ago. Now, here's some more information. About this generation... Um, this, this guy who did this research is looking at people born between 1977 and 1994. He calls it the we generation. Some of them date it from 80 to 2000. It's called Generation Y. The attraction of biblical death, depth. The younger generation is attracted to churches that have greater biblical depth. 70% of 18 to 22-year-olds drop out of the church. That number is much higher depending on who's doing the statistics. Many of them are crying for deeper biblical teaching and preaching. This will become more pervasive with Generation We, those born between 1977 and 1994, who number over $72 million. That number now is, is over $80 million. Increased means of relational connection. Relational connections have always been important for churches for both reaching and assimilation. The trend is accelerating. Three different studies by LifeWay Research point to this trend. What is fascinating to see is how the digital world is truly a relational world for Generation We. They live in the world of texting, Facebook, MySpace, and Twitter. This is how... They're not anti-relationship. This is how they're facilitating their connections and their relationships. Because the church has done a very poor job in, 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 in doing what the biblical mandate is. And so the need that, that people inherently have for this to be connected and for relationships, they're not getting it in the church, so they're, the, they're getting it through the culture. It's not that they don't want to be connected. It's not that they don't want those relationships. They just don't believe the church is the place that they're going to find them. Third is this, a growing chasm between attitudes about Christianity and attitudes about church. Now listen, this was, I thought was very interesting. 
among unchurched, listen, non-Christians, among unchurched non-Christians, 64% think Christianity is relevant for today. These are people who profess not to be Christian. They don't go to church, yet 64% of these non-believers believe that Christianity is relevant for today. But 86% say the church is not where they would connect with Christianity. Now, to me, when I hear that, that doesn't even make sense because how can you separate the church from Christianity? Because I understand what the church is. I know what the Scripture declares the church to be. But these unchurched, non-believers who believe the majority that Christianity is relevant, but 86% say Christianity is not... I'm not going to find Christianity in the church. I don't associate Christianity with the church. Are you hearing me, Are you hearing me, church? The world does not associate Christianity with the church. There is a problem with that because you cannot have Christianity and not have the church. You can't. Whose fault is that? Yes, sir. I'm going to raise my hand as a pastor. It's the church's fault. The disconnect is the fault of the church. It's not the fault of the world. They're only believing and they're only discerning what we have shown them and what we have taught them. And we have taught them and we have shown them poorly. Church organizational issues are becoming more important. In the past two decades, church organizational issues were not, were not considered relevant topics. That is changing today as churches deal with issues of membership losses, inactive members, and members who are, listen to this, members who are busy at church but not growing spiritually. See, here's the lie we bought into. As long as we keep everybody busy, we're all busy little bees, everything's good. The reality is that's not true. How do we know it's not true? Because we have 86% of professing non-believers who don't even associate Christianity with the church. How can that be? If the church is doing what it is supposed to be doing, if we're accurately modeling Christ to a lost and dying world, or are we just so happy that we're busy little bees doing all of our spiritual activity and we're not paying attention to what's happening to those that are going on? Churches have become too busy, too complex, and too activity-driven. Now, let me give you the most current the most current information. This was released in June of 2011 by Thomas Rainier. Thomas Rainier is, is kind of like a Barna guy. They've got their own group. This comes out of Lifeway Research. Five major trends for the church in America. Number one is this. Our nation will see the emergence of the largest generational mission field in more than a century. According to our current research, the millennial generation, those born between 1980 and 2000, will have a very low Christian representation. Our estimates now are that only 15% are Christian. With a huge population of nearly 80 million That means that nearly 70 million young people are not Christian. The largest generational mission field in more than a century. Number two is this. The dominant attitude of this huge generation toward Christianity will be largely indifferent. Only 13% of the millennials rank any type of spiritual matter as important to their lives. They are not angry at churches and Christians. They simply ignore us because they do not deem us as meaningful or relevant. They're not mad at the church. They're not angry. They just don't believe we're relevant. I would rather them be angry at me. (laughs) 
Really and truly, I would. At least if they're angry at me, they're paying attention. They, they believe at least what I say matters. They, they just, they, they're not angry. They just, they just don't value anything we have to say because we are absolutely and completely irrelevant to them. I'm talking to you about knowing your times. If we want to keep living in our Christian bubble and think everything's okay, that's fine. But the reality is we better pay attention to what's going on in the culture. And the reason we need to pay attention is the same reason God tells Israel to pay attention. Because when God told Israel to celebrate the feast of Passover, he said, you celebrate it and you do it year after year after year for you, for your children, and for your children's children, and for every generation that comes after. What does that tell us about God? God was not just interested in those that were here and now present. God says, you're doing this for your grandchildren and their generations that will come after them. My question to you, church, is how have we come to the place that we are at when 86% of those who do not believe in Christ do not even associate Christianity with the church, yet they believe Christianity is relevant for them? And the church has become so irrelevant, they don't even pay attention to us anymore. They want to have nothing to do with the church. How have we come to that? I, I, here's how we've come to that, because we have not paid attention, we have not known our times, and we have not looked ahead and planned for those who would come after us. Because we succumb to the culture. And we let the culture dictate to us instead of us being salt and light to the earth around us. Instead of us being leaven that's leavening the lump, we've let the world contaminate us. Here's a third major trend. Senior adult ministry and churches will experience steep declines. I thought this was kind of comical as I turned 51 this year, you know, my, listen, my mortality is becoming more and more apparent to me every day. Here's what it says. As the large baby, the two prominent generations are the baby boomers, those born after World War II till up to about 1961. I, I was born at the end of the baby boom generation. And this group that we're talking about, the millennials, these are the two generations that make up the majority of the population in America. So the baby boomers, the baby boom generation will become more receptive, I'm sorry, uh, will experience steep declines in senior adult ministry. As the baby boomer generation moves into their older years, they will resist any suggestion that they are senior adults, no matter how senior they may be. Do I have any senior adults who understand what that sentence they will resist any <laughs> I thought this was my they will resist any suggestion that they are senior adults no matter how senior they may be. Unfortunately, many churches are slow to adapt to new realities. And if they do, if they do senior adult ministry the way they've always done it, it will be headed for failure. Number 4, the large boomer generation will become more receptive to the gospel. And the point there is they've tried everything else and everything else has failed and the only thing they got left to look to is, is Jesus. And they believe that as baby boomers get older and they approach their mortality, they will begin to turn to the Lord and this, this will be a good thing. Number five, here's one I want to focus on. Family will be a key value for both of the large generations. For the millennials, family is their most important value. In all of this survey, in all of this data that they've brought in, this generation who, for the most part, doesn't value spiritual things, doesn't value the church, but they're passionate about making a difference in, in their culture, in their community. They're ready to go out and feed the poor and do things to help people. They just don't associate those things with the church and with Christianity. But they value family. For millennials, family is their most important value. Nearly 8 out of 10 of the millennials ranked family as the important issue in their lives. They told us that they had healthy relationships with their parents, 
who for the most part are baby boomers. Some churches say that they are family-friendly, but few actually demonstrate that value. Churches that reach both of these generations will make significant changes to become the type of churches that foster healthy family relationships. Now, I just kind of touched on the high points. I want to, I want to read some scripture to you. Let's go to, uh, turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. And while you're doing that, I want, to, I want to read three scriptures to you. First is out of 1 Chronicles chapter 12, verse 32. And remember, what are we talking about? We're talking about knowing our times, right? And the scripture speaks of understanding, of knowing and discerning our times. As a matter of fact, 1 Chronicles 12, 32, it says, the sons of Issachar who had understanding of the times to know what Israel ought to do. Luke 19.44, Jesus stands over Jerusalem as he is getting ready to go in to be crucified. He's making the triumphal entry. He's standing overlooking the city, and he weeps over the city, and he says, because you did not know the time of your visitation. How has Christianity in America come to the place that it has come to, I'm going to tell you how, because the church has failed to know her times. Matthew 16, 3. Hypocrites, you know how to discern the face of the sky, but you cannot discern the signs of the time. The scripture tells us we should be a people that understand, that know, that are able to discern our times. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, the Apostle Paul is writing to the Corinthians. Let's begin in verse 19. 1 Corinthians 9, 19. For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win the more. And to the Jews... I became as a Jew, that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law, as under the law, that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without law, I became as without law. He qualifies that. Not being without law toward God, but under law toward Christ. In other words... I didn't compromise the gospel. I didn't compromise the truth to reach these people. I just understood who they were. And I didn't go in there as a Jew trying to enforce Jewish law on them. They didn't have the law. Not being without law toward God, but under the law toward Christ, that I might win those who are without law. To the weak, I became as weak that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, that I might by all means save some. Why, Paul, do you do this? He tells us right here in verse 23. Now this I do for the gospel's sake, that I may be a partaker of it with you. Why must we know our times? We must know our times for the gospel's sake. Why must we know our culture? We must know our culture for the gospel's sake. We better understand what's taking place in our culture. We we need to understand why 86% of, of people of this generation today don't equate Christianity with the church. I don't know about you, but that's like a huge problem. That's like a huge flashing red light going problem, problem, problem. We need to know our culture for the gospel's sake. Paul's point was that he exercised discernment regarding the culture he ministered to. As God's people, we should be, we should be the ones who are the most discerning of our time and of our place. If anybody knows Taylor, Texas, it should be the church in Taylor, Texas. If anybody understands the culture in Taylor, Texas, it should be the church in Taylor, Texas. Turn that AC up. It's like freezing in here. 
We need to, not just Taylor, but, but everywhere around us. We need to understand why these things are coming out. Why are we to know, listen, why are we to know our times and to know our culture? We know it for the gospel's sake. We exercise discernment for the gospel's sake. And in exercising that discernment, we do not compromise the gospel. In fact, we magnify the gospel. Because the solution is not a compromise. The solution is a magnification of the gospel. Because the gospel is the only thing that has the power to transform lives. The gospel is the only thing that has the power to save men. When we talk about a strategy in regards to our mission, we must not think in terms of programs, but in terms of culture. What I've been talking to you about today is the culture. This is the reality of the culture that we live in. Most people don't have a clue what's really happening in their culture because we're not engaged, because we're staring at this little dot and we don't understand. I just know I want to get here or I just know this is where I am. But God is saying, no, listen, you need to understand what's taking place here. Because whether you believe it or not, it's having an impact on your life. You're buying things today and you're paying prices for things today because there are people who really understand the culture and they know how to use that understanding. They're, all, they're marketing majors from the University of Texas. They're why you buy what you buy. They're, they're why you buy things and you don't really even want to buy it, but you go ahead and buy it anyways. You pay a higher price than you would normally be willing to pay because they just understand the force of these things. Because they're, they're understanding the big picture. The world shouldn't have the, the, the corner on that market of wisdom. The church needs to understand these things. That means we're going to have to pull back and we're going to have to start looking at big picture issues. So we talk in terms of culture. Simply, this is about changing the culture of the church. We must think of this in terms of planting an orchard or planting a vineyard with the expectation of a fruitful harvest. And out of that is a commitment to nurture and to care for the vision until we reap the harvest in due season. Galatians 6, 9, let us not grow weary while doing good, for if we do not lose heart, we shall reap. When do you reap? You reap in due season. You don't harvest corn in February. Why? Because it's not the season to harvest corn. But Uncle Lloyd told me his grandpa planted corn March 22nd, every year. That was the time to plant corn. And that meant, in the months to come, harvest time. There was a season to plant. There was a season to harvest. We need to discern the season to plant, but we also need to discern the season to harvest. We approach this like planting a vineyard. It's going to take commitment. It's going to take patience to nurture, to care for it until we reap in due season. This is going to require patience as we look to the future. Christ Fellowship wants its members to live Christianity. We want to be distinct in the way we work, in the way we speak, the way we think, the way we rest, the way we play. We want to do those things which glorify Jesus Christ and the Father. Jesus said in John 15, by this our Father is glorified. My Father is glorified by the fruit that you bear, by your much fruit. God exists eternally in community, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. God didn't create man because he was lonely. If you ever hear anybody tell you that, please just kindly say, I'm sorry, God was not lonely when he created man. God lived in perfect harmony and perfect community, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He was not lonely. God didn't need man. God chose to create man, not out of his need, but out of his love, out of his grace, and out of his mercy. God exists in community, and to properly reflect his communal nature, and to follow his communal commands, we must, as a people, engage in fellowship which is sacrificially loving, fellowship that is consistent, worshipful, and authentically transparent. 
Praise God, the rain. Do you hear me? Authentically transparent. I'm a pretty transparent guy. You guys just come to my house some Friday night, you'll, you'll understand that, okay? In our families, would you say in your family you're pretty transparent? I bet you are in your families. Now, you might not be as transparent when you're visiting your neighbor. But I'm talking about relationships. See, our relationships have got to be more than just surface. They've got to be more than just Sunday morning niceties. The Bible calls us a family. The Bible calls us a body. When I use the term biblical community, I'm I'm not talking about Sunday morning niceties. I'm talking about we're called to live life together. So at any given moment, not just because I'm your pastor, you should be able to call on me. And I should respond, if at all possible, not because I'm your pastor, but because I'm your brother. Because I'm your family. That doesn't happen overnight. Families don't develop overnight. It takes time for families to grow and develop. But they must grow and they must develop. We strive for a culture of true biblical community and true fellowship, which will, number one, build and strengthen families and individuals This is our discipleship. To build and strengthen families and individuals, this is our discipleship. Not not an eight-hour or 18-week program. I'm talking about this is living life together. Discipleship is about how we live life together, how we walk hand-in-hand, arm-in-arm, through the challenges of life. Discipleship's not a course you go through and now you're a disciple. Listen, you will be becoming a disciple in greater and greater measure, the entire time you're on this planet. So we build and strengthen families and individuals. This is discipleship. We overflow into our communities. This is a community. Where you work is a community. The city you live in is a community. Where you shop is a community. Do you understand what I'm saying? We overflow into the communities that we live in, that we exist in, that we do life in. This is Our evangelism. It's going to be your witness to that clerk at HEB that you go to every time you buy groceries. And finally, one day, she just says, Joel and Rao told me this the other day. She works at the HEB in Elgin. She said, I got people that just come to my line. They won't go to anybody else's line. And some of of those people, it's like, well, you're always happy. You're always smiling. But what does that tell me? That tells me that's Christ in her. That is the life and the love of Christ coming out of her. And people, whether they realize it or not, they're drawn to that. This is our evangelism, the overflow into our communities. We build and strengthen families and individuals. We overflow into our community. We glorify our Lord. This is our lifestyle. Our life and our lifestyle should bring glory to God. Amen? The fruit of the Spirit should be manifest in our lives and it brings glory to the Father. Do you understand what I'm saying? This this is not something we can just schedule and do on a Sunday morning or schedule and do on a Sunday night. This is something that's got to become our life. And then everything we do on Sunday morning or we do on Sunday night or we do on Wednesday night is reinforcing that. But the end is not those things we do here We do the things we do here because the end is this lifestyle that glorifies the Father. So you get rid of all your boxes and you've only got one life. It is your life in Christ. It's the same life you live on Sunday morning at church. It's the same life you live on Monday morning when you go to work. It's the same life you live on Tuesday afternoon when you're driving home from work. It's the same life you live when you're pumping gas. It's the same life you live when you're buying groceries. It's the same life you live when that person that calls you on the phone is annoying you, but instead of telling them what you really want to tell them, you give them the love of Jesus. Or that person at work that you just want to, but you're just going to love them anyways. 
because it's what Jesus would do. And you don't do it just because it's what Jesus would do. You do it because that is the love. That is the life that's just coming out of you. That's the overflow. And that's the witness. And that's the glory. In this way, we build true biblical community as the family of God, walking out our faith. This is what, this is what Christianity, this is what the church is supposed to be about. So this is our introduction to some things. We're going we're gonna to go from here and we're going to talk about some things. And we're going we're gonna to talk about some specific things that we're going to encourage uh, that we're going to do as a church. We can call them programs, but the reality is I hate that word because that word is what we have pinned everything on for the last five decades and it has failed miserably. It's, can't, it's got to become a culture. It's got to just become our life. You don't come here. I hope you don't come here on Sunday morning because this, because this is a great program. I hope you come here because this is part of your lifestyle as a Christian. Assembling together as the body of Christ is not a program. It is your life in Christ. Your body is not one because God created a great program. Listen, your body is one because that's the way God created it to function. We are who we are. We do what we do because this is the way God has created us to function. This is what the church has got to get back to. We've got to get back to what God created us to be and how he created us to function because that is the nature of our life and the nature of Christ who is our life. Amen? Let's all stand. So come back next week. We're going to have some more conversation. Bring someone with you. They need to hear. Jesus changed the world with 12 men. You believe that we can not change the world. Do you believe that that we can change the culture in our lives, in our families, in in the realms of influence that that God has put within our reach? I I believe we can. Not in a grandiose way. I'm just saying... In small ways. See, we, we haven't come to where we are because we took a giant step backwards. We come to where we are because little by little by little, we've compromised, we've let things eat away and deteriorate. And we're not going to climb out of this by one giant leap. It's going to be line upon line, precept upon precept. And God will. He knows how to get us where we need to be. He's going to Help us pull back and get the big picture so we know how to get from this point to that point. Amen? Amen. Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you for the privilege of being called your people. Lord, I, I pray today that you would give us, as your children, as members of the body of Christ, that you would give us wisdom. Lord, we need wisdom. Solomon, when he had, when he had anything and everything at his disposal... He could ask anything of God. He asked, God, give me wisdom to rule this people. And Father, I pray that would be our heart's cry, that you would give your church wisdom, that we would know how to walk, that we would know how to talk, that we would know the times that we live in, that we would understand the culture in which we find ourselves living in today in America. Father God, we would trust you that we would return back to the balance, the plumb line that you've given us, that is the word of God. Jesus, you are the living word. I pray, God, that as we turn back to you, as we return back to that which brings balance to all things, to that which is the truth, that, God, you'd begin to set us free from the bondage of our culture, from the bondage of things that, that we've become enslaved to, that your church, God, would become once again salt and light in the earth, that we would be the leaven, leavening the lump, that we would be making a difference in our families, in our friends, in our communities, with one another. Lord, this is only possible through you, 
and by your Holy Spirit. We don't lean upon the wisdom of man. We lean upon the power of your Spirit. Not by might, not by power, but by my Spirit, says the Lord. We ask you, God, to do it by your Spirit. Empower your church to change her witness in the world that Christ may be seen and Christ may be known and the Father would be glorified. In Jesus' name, everybody said, Amen. God bless you. If you're here today, look, it's raining. You want to just be patient, let it slack off for a moment. If you're here today and you say, Pastor Jeff, I really would like prayer, a prayer of agreement.